with authority. Welcome to another quarantine edition of our With Authority podcast. Larry Beal, Casey Brett, and joining us from Monclova, Mexico, is Bruce Maxwell, a man who's in the news once again. Uh, A's fans will remember his time in Oakland. And first of all, before we even get started with anything, I just want to say we're grateful for your time because I know everybody wants to talk to you right now based on the news events that are taking place and the question of to kneel or not to kneel and what that actually means. For people who aren't familiar with your story, I'm just going to rewind a few years to 2017 after Colin Kaepernick took a knee. You decided you wanted to do the same thing. You were playing for the A's at the time. You knelt down and uh, the ramifications have been felt by both of you. Some would say it's part of the reason why you're in Mexico now, but we'll get into that. Uh, I want to touch on the Drew Brees story to start things off because your dad's a military man. And so you obviously understand what it means to sacrifice for your country and, and saw what he did. And for some, now Drew Brees did issue an apology. Is it surprising to you that we can't get off this track or some people cannot separate what kneeling means in terms of protesting police brutality and justice for all and blending that in with the flag and the military. We're still having the same conversation from three years ago. What's your take on that? Um, I personally think that the conversation holds more of a weight now due to the recent events of uh, the police brutality and the murder of George Floyd. And uh, with the lack of uh, the lack of sports in the world right now really adds a a focus on what has happened. Um, I personally think the question was never really answered three years ago. It wasn't answered 100 years ago, and it wasn't answered 400 years ago. I don't think people have really sat down and actually asked and tried to answer that question. Um, I think people have done their best to avoid it as much as possible um, with any distraction that they can, which I personally think the um, – the disrespect in the military and the flag is a, is a distraction that people don't want to look into themselves and understand that there truly is a problem with humanity, maybe with them, maybe with their neighbor, maybe with their family, uh, who knows. Um, but I think personally, when people say it's disrespect in the military, disrespect in the flag, and the uh, all lives matter comments that people tend to love to say, um, you know, it, it bothers me. Because it's a, it's a it's a deflecting technique, uh, it really is. People want to talk about the military and and uh, our flag and our national anthem. Well, my father fought in the military. My grandfather fought in the military. I've got uncles and aunts. Uh, I have an aunt that served 35 years in the military, and these are the same people. And before them, you had the same people and uh, that have fought in the battle, and they came home to be mistreated because of what they look like. You know, they uh, they went overseas, put their life on the line for a country that didn't respect them as a human being, but respected them enough or supposedly respected them enough to allow them to risk their lives and put a uniform on to defend this that same country. Um, I find a, there's a huge problem with that. Um, so the people that say we're disrespecting our military, I mean, if you really want to look at it, I feel like our military dis disrespects our military. Um you know, the unfair treatment of coloreds and women in our military is, uh, is a big, big issue. 
uh, it's always been an issue, but, you know, just because they have a uniform on people just try to like, let it slide. But it's, I mean, I've, from my dad's personal experience from my aunt, my uncle, uh, a couple of my uncles and my grandfather, uh, discrimination is heavy in the military, especially with black men. I mean, women get it from all sorts of angles because they're females. But when it comes to black men, it's very evident in the military. So I thought it was interesting. And I don't know if you saw the statement that Drew Brees issued today. Uh, he kind of walked back some of his statements and it's obvious that the conversations he had with his teammates over the past 24 hours made an impact on him, but nowhere in his statement did he say, I will now take a knee during the national anthem. He, he didn't really address that at all. So I, do you wonder whether the point has really been made and whether these two issues can be separated? Um, I think they, um, they can't be separated, honestly. Um, I feel like, for you to understand the kneeling, you have to have a sense of acceptance of potentially being the problem. You have to have a, uh, a certain amount of empathy to un truly try to understand where uh, black people are coming from, brown people are coming from. Um, if you choose not to fully accept that you might be a part of the problem or, or white people are part of our problem that we have today and we had 400 years ago, then you'll never truly uh, understand where we're coming from. So therefore you'll truly not never understand the message. Um, personally, Drew Brees said what he said. Um, I, I mean, I know a lot of people and I know a lot of guys in the NFL of color and, and some of them are some of my very good friends. And, uh, you know, he said what he said, you know, I read that on Twitter today. Uh, most people that make comments like that and within 24 hours issue an apology, they're just sorry because they got caught. Um, he, there's a lack of understanding. This man has played his career at a, ultimately a high level. He's a hero down in, in New Orleans and in the NFL and a good and a big face for the NFL, but without the help and the support of his fellow black players, his uh, all time TD record and all the records and wins that he has wouldn't be. And I say that with the utmost compassion and, and, uh, Hopefully he understands if he doesn't, you know, oh well. But without a lot of his success, it leads to his brothers, black people on his team that also sacrifice for the bigger goal and still have these problems off the field when they're not in uniform. Um, but for the, 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 the fact that he can't understand that, he can't put his uh, whatever type of pride he has or ignorance that he possesses, and understand that his teammates, his so-called brothers um, on that field are going through these things on a daily basis and are looked at as less than equal human beings because of the color of their skin, something they cannot control. And to make that statement on national television, it's a problem. He's, he's upset and he's apologetic because he got caught. And people are saying, his teammates are coming out and saying things. His hype videos that everybody loves, his, his leadership badge that the NFL has given him and his teammates have given him has just been revoked. He's never going to be able to come back from that because that's just a lack of compassion. That's from a lack of understanding. Like, you wake up every – I have one of my friends that um, from the South with me. He's, he's uh, my stepbrother. I talk to him all the time, and he's always concerned with these things with me because he's white. And my, my step mother's family is from in Alabama 
I, I used to tell him all the time. And I was like, hey, wake up white with a smile. You're good. Like, you don't have to have any problems. And, and it was a joke, but it's also kind of serious. Like, white people don't understand how much of a privilege it is to wake up the white in our country. I mean, it, it really, you don't have to worry about anything. I was like, dude, my dad taught us to uh, respect everybody, to wear your clothes correctly, to uh, make sure you use your manners, like make sure you're on time. That way we could eliminate other bias towards us and our people. I was like, and that's just little things, man. Like it's, it's, he's sorry because he got caught, man. That's, that's what it is. That's what I get out of it. You know, looking back, when you decided to take the knee, you know, what was the tipping point for you? What was the thing? Or is it, it's probably just been an accumulation of life experiences, I would imagine. But what, what led to that decision? A lot of, uh, a lot of experiences um, where, I'm, where I'm from in Alabama. Um, but also what, what, what was my tipping point was Donald Trump had a rally that year in Huntsville, Alabama, where I'm, where I'm raised. Um, to see on national television the support he got for calling the NFL players sons of bitches because they were peacefully protesting the inequality and the police brutality in America against black people um, was, was very uncomfortable for me. It was upsetting to me. Uh, I had a little breakdown after seeing that to see my city where I was raised and developed a lot of good relationships that I no longer have. Um, and to see them support that type of behavior and, and uh, word choice is, is, is pretty degrading for me. And it makes me um, regret where I'm from. Honestly, it's no longer home for me. And my mother and my parents can attest to that because I very rarely go back home because of that. Um, that was my tipping point. That was my tipping point. I was like, you know what? I've given baseball my whole life. I've sacrificed my family relationships, my personal relationships for this game. This game needs to step up, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the first one to take that step through the door. I was like, I'm tired of – I said I'm tired of, uh, you know, shutting my mouth and keeping it moving. I'm tired of walking with my head down, trying not to step on people's toes to get that wrong persona, uh, perception of me, uh, maybe because of my play, maybe because of my color. I don't know but I was tired of sitting in the dark and not saying something. Now, how hypocritical do you find it though now with what's going on? You know, we're calling in the military, we're tear gassing our own citizens and in these types of protests, but back when the peaceful protests were happening, they also had a problem with that too. So, I mean, how can things change? Um, it relies, that responsibility lies in every American, every person on the, on the planet actually. Um, people have to remember that there's only one race on this planet and it's the human race. Um, I heard, I heard a quote that really resonated with me this morning. It said, um, God created one race and it was the human race. It said humans created racism. And I, I firmly believe that, um, you know, the, the same chemical in your body that creates you know, the, the pigment in your skin is also part of the same one that makes the color of your eyes. And so, you're penalizing people for something that they can't control. They have no choice in, but for some reason you have this persona that you're a hierarchy. If you're a white person in America and you feel like you're in, have a sense of entitlement that gives you the power to degrade and belittle other people of color that don't look like you. Um, we're going to have to 
look deep into our souls and our, in our, in our lives and understand that there's nothing that's more important than the human race and the life next to you. Um, valuing your neighbor and valuing your friends and valuing people for the lives they have and the blessings that they have to be alive every day instead of valuing what kind of car you drive, what neighborhood you live in, what kind of job you have, what color you are. Because at the end of the day, we all look the same in God's eyes. And I tell people that all the time, it doesn't matter if you're black, blue, or purple. If you're a good person, we're going to get along really well. Like, and, and it really doesn't matter. I, I mean, it's just, it's, it's within all of us, man. It's a leadership question. It's how do we get out of this? And it's from everybody taking a step back and checking themselves, holding themselves responsible, holding their family responsible for mistreating people for things they can't control. Um, you know, that's a, that's a big step for me. And that's, that's what I try to do every day. And, uh, you know, kids I mentor and, and kids I coach, you know, all over the country, I still coach them. Um, I tell them, like, you know, focus on your education. Try to be a good person every day. Respect people, even if you might feel like they don't deserve it, because that's what you do. That's what you do as a, as a person. That's, that's you respect a, another human, you know, not necessarily maybe on their words, but maybe their actions. You don't disrespect somebody because of what they drive or what color they are or where they're from or how they sound, how they talk. I was like, I know a lot of people that talk funny. Doesn't mean I hate them. I mean, I'm black and I'm white. My mom's a 5'1 redhead, white lady, sweetest lady ever. She understands. She sacrificed her, her, her safety back then to have mixed children with my black father. Like, it's, it's, um, it, it comes back to just being, having faith in humanity, dude, being a good person. That's all it, it comes down to. There's no superiority because you're white. There's no um, lack of superiority because you're black. Like, no, we, we all are people, man. Like, it's, it's sickening, but it requires every single one of us to make a change within ourselves for this to change in the world. It really does. You're talking about humanity. And if we were judging humans by the reaction to you taking a knee, we probably wouldn't score very high as a whole. Could you talk nope. about the ramifications? And the, you went back, I know, several times to Huntsville, Alabama, where you were uh, raised and the reaction from people that you got, people that I assume you were friends with for you know most of your life and, and how those relationships changed after that moment. Um, my life changed after that moment, to be honest with you. I've never, I've never witnessed so much hatred, uh, for one thing in my entire life. Um, I, uh, the, the, the density and the, the threats and the comments that I was receiving, even to this day about that, that day, um, of kneeling during the national anthem. Uh, it's, it's disturbing. It really is. Um, I never knew somebody could possess so much hatred. Um, for trying to stand up for doing what's right. You know, my parents always taught me standing up for what's right might not be easy, but it is the right thing to do. Um, you know, and, and to see the very little that did support, I got a lot of support from military vets, including the ones in my family. Um, I got a lot of hate from mil military vets. I got a lot of hate from a lot of people, but I don't think I got, I don't think I received hate from one black person, to be completely honest with you. Um, a lot of those people that hated me are still the people to this day that call me a thug on publications and call me a criminal and all these things. And, uh, they don't have anything else to say though. They really don't. And, you know, instead of, 
thinking I'm the problem, maybe my message and the purpose of what I was doing might be the problem. You know, um, the, the national anthem and the, the military is a defense mechanism for people that don't have any other thing to, to say bad about you, you know? So um, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty rough, pretty, pretty rough uh, two years of my life. I'll, I'll Scary at all uh, in terms of, I mean, very, I mean, in terms of death threats, I know, well, just my own interactions with people on Twitter, everybody's pretty heroic when they're, you know, uh, sitting behind their phone and uh, they, they would say things or type things to you that they would never say if they were to run into you in a parking lot because, uh, because they don't want to do that. <laughs> and, yeah, they, and so, uh, but still, you don't know the, the random nut out there that might follow through on some act. Yeah, um, I think the amount was frightening. Um, you know, I, I was, I, at the time when I was talking to my, my agent at the time and my, my parents, I'd, I'll take my chances if somebody tries to come to my house. doesn't mean I'm not going to be afraid, but pretty big guy. I think I'll be all right. But, um, when it comes to threatening my family and more so my sisters and my mother, that was a, that was a problem for me. Big, big problem. It, that got a very big rise out of me and my character. Um, a way that I would never really act um, without that, that affecting me. Um, it's one thing you don't threaten or mess with in my family is the women. Um, I'm very close to my mother and my sister. And so uh, that was frightening to me to know that potentially my mom and my sister are in danger because of what I did. Um, yeah, that was, that was, that was a little scary. I mean, outside of that, a lot of people, you know, threaten to hang me. I got that when I was a kid. Um, you know, they threatened to, you know, blow up whatever, or they set my house on fire or, or whatever it is. Like, it's all frightening. But the grand scheme of things, the volume and the amount of hatred that I received was the scariest thing to me. It caused me to, uh, I was locked in my house for about three weeks. Uh, my mom came out, my dad came out. Um, it, it was a dark place for me. Thought about suicide. I really did. Um, I, I was losing, surrounded by so much hate, I was losing my purpose at the time. I really was. Because um, in my mind, I'm like, you know what? I stood up for what was right. I stood up for my own family, the problems that we've had with inequality and, and all these things and where I'm from. My friends that have dealt with it, gotten there, you know, gotten beat up by the cops for false, uh, false, um, for racial profiling and, and whatnot. And, and I thought I was doing what was right, what I was, what was in my heart and to be penalized and to, in my opinion, lose my career over that, um, was, was demoralizing. It really was. What was the support structure like for you in the immediate aftermath of it though? I know that, you know, Mark Canna was there. He had his hand on you and, and your teammates uh, were there with you. So what kind of reaction did you get from them uh, after you did take the knee? Um, at the moment I had support. Um, I had support from my, my staff and our ownership and our, my teammates. Um, I had actually addressed all of them before the, the game, before batting practice the day I did it, gave them all, gave them my reasonings, gave them my purpose and gave them the, the right and the opportunity to object if they feared for their reputation, their family safety, um, whatever it is. 
and nobody did, you know. So at the moment, it was great, honestly. Um, but the aftermath, uh, when I after my arrest and all those things, you know, my agent was no help at the time. Uh, the Players Association never talked to me. Um, they, it took them months uh, to reach out to me, um, but they never helped me with anything. Um, so I was pretty much on my own little island. You know, I wasn't represented by the people I'm represented now at that time, and I wish I would have been. A lot more might have uh, came to surface, and this might have been a little easier transition for me. Um, but now I'm, you know, represented by the right people and the right surroundings. So, um, but yeah, at that time I was by myself, man. I was, I was on my own. I had the support from, you know, Can a couple of my teammates, but they were in, they were in no position of power or, or influence. Um, you know, as you know, at our team, we don't have any 15 year vets, 10 year vets, none of those guys. Um, and so I was really on my own, you know, outside of the, the couple guys who spoke up in the league and that were no longer in the league. Uh, I got support from those guys, a couple of my mentors, you know, Troy Hawkins, Coco Crisp, Adam Jones, uh, those guys. Um, but other than that, I mean, it, was, it, it slowly went back to just me, you know, at the time, the message and the meaning was supported, but then there was no actions to show the support. So it, it, it slowly faded away, honestly. So, yeah, I mean, it's interesting how people can have a lack of listening and understanding. When you first did it, I was really happy for you. I was excited for you because being able to interact with you just in the little bit that I was able to, you're so well-spoken, you're so approachable, you're such a great ambassador for something like this that, that I was excited. But then people just want to pile on and pile on and pile on. And, and then you were in that dark place. And then, as you mentioned, the arrest did happen. So um, have you seen that they just want to pile on and, and can you explain maybe how that all happened? Because I know that you said you were in a very tough spot at the time and obviously understandably scared. Yeah. Um, you know, my arrest happened and a lot of people don't want to know the facts. A lot of the facts are, are skewed on the internet. So I've spent my time in this last couple of days explaining to people who want to hear it, what my truth was. And, Truth is that I was intoxicated in my own home. I had a had a knock at my door that I personally did not um, um, invite, lack of a better word. Um, I didn't know who was there. I was frightened. I was like I said, I was intoxicated. I own that. Um, intoxicated in my home own home is not a crime. So I went to my safe, got my gun. I answered my door. Mind you, um, I have two doors at the place I was current, I was living at at the time. I opened up the first one, had my gun in my hand inside my home. A little girl popped out. I startled. She startled. I apologized to her. She was clearly frightened. I would be frightened too. I understood it. Um, I apologized to her numerous times. And then I walked back in after I found out who she was and what she was doing in my house. I walked back in my living room and I put my gun back in my safe. I walked back out. I apologized to her again. I was like, I don't remember ordering anything on my phone. And I, you know, I looked at my phone and one of my, one of my friends who was drinking with me before I came home ordered food and, but he, and he didn't end up coming home with me and I forgot. And I was like, tend to forget things when you're intoxicated. So, um, she was like, no, it's all good. Like I'm, I told her, I'm sorry. I'm frightened you. Didn't mean to just in a, in a rough spot right now. I'm in a rough place. She opened my door, handed me the food and walked away. 
Next thing I know, I've got 911 calling me and because um, she had made a call to them and they called me and I, I was directed to walk outside and I had rifles pointed at me. Like I had rifles pointed at me like I had just killed 30 people and hid their bodies in my apartment, you know. Um, so they put me in cuffs. I had a police officer try to kick me down on my knee uh, while I was already in cuffs. And I wasn't even moving. I was just standing there and I didn't fall. And made a he made a comment like next time I, you know, next time I tell you to get on your knees, get on your knees. And I was like, there's no need for it. I'm already in cuffs and I'm not even resisting. I'm just standing here. I don't even know why I'm getting arrested. And um, so as that time pursues, I asked for shirt and shoes. They deny my right of shirt and shoes. I asked them multiple times for it. Uh, in the police report, they said that they offered me shirt and shoes. And I said no, which is not true. Um, because why would I not say no? All I had was shorts on. I mean, you know, and um, and I didn't honestly, I didn't know what I got charged with or supposedly was getting charged with until the next morning. Um, they never told me. Uh, they never told me. And uh, the, the beautiful TMZ video that's cut uh, that everybody in the world has seen that says um, it's it's cut to where it says I said MLB. Uh, what people don't know and what they choose not to know is um, that whole that whole skit got cut, but who I was talking to was a former Oakland A minor leaguer, one of my teammates, a guy who I used to call a friend. I was telling him, I was like, I know why you guys are here. I know why there's 10, 12 of you guys here. I was like, you guys know who I am. He was like, we get it, Bruce. You're, ML, you're a major league baseball player. You play for the Oakland A's, blah, blah. I was like, no, that's not what this is about. I said, the MLB. I said, career, job. I said, we're talking about a black man right now getting arrested by all these white dudes excessively. And you guys won't even tell me why you're arrested. So that's the, that's that whole skit that people don't see, um, which your judgment, your judgment. Like I'm not here to, I'm not here to change your mind really. Um, but I got trans, I got sent to the County police that night, stayed overnight. The next, even the next morning, a police officer that woke me up in the cell before I got transferred to city or to yeah city, um, he was like, where are your shoes and your shirt? I was like, I asked the police officers that arrested me last night and they wouldn't tell me why I was arrested and they wouldn't give me a pair, uh, shirt and shoes. And this random police officer went and gave me a gray t-shirt and some flip-flops before they took me outside and put me in the van to get transferred. And so, um, it was a, it was a rough time, man. It was, it was really a rough time. It was a dark place for me. I was scared for a lot of reasons. I was frightened for a lot of reasons. And like I said, I was in a very suicidal state and uh, I just didn't, I didn't want to go outside. You know, I was like, I, I never knew why some people could hate me for doing what's right on a clear issue in America. Uh, because I, I personally have grown up to believe in humanity and to not judge by somebody by the color of the skin, but by their actions. Um, you know, and so to, to continue that hate and to continue what I went through and still to this day, and uh, it influenced my career and influenced my life the way it has. It's unfortunate, but I still find a way to wake up every day with a smile and get back to work. So, so any regrets on any of this? Uh, obviously, I'm sure you you wish that the arrest didn't happen. But when you look at these things in total, do you think like Colin Kaepernick, who's not in the NFL, despite a skill level that would suggest that at the very least he could be a backup quarterback for somebody, if not an outright starter? In your situation, you're down in Mexico now. Do you think that the accumulation of 
of events has led you to being blackballed from Major League Baseball? 100%. Um, I've heard all types of excuses why I'm not back in the, in the States or the NBA or the MLB. And they're like, oh, you know, it's probably because of the rest, not because of kneeling. Kneeling's never been the issue. My arrest got proven false. I said, you know, I disorderly conduct um, charge. That's about the weight of uh, pissing on a building when you're intoxicated in public. I was like, I know guys that are in the, in the MLB to this day that have gotten proven guilty of beating their wives or, or discharging weapons in public with the intent to harm somebody. And all they got was suspensions from their teams. And then they continued to get paid like nothing ever happened. I was like, I just, I personally think it's, it's clearly unfair uh, that the extremity of how I was treated by the MLB and my players association due to the fact that all I did was stand up for injustice and police brutality against my own people. I never, I never cursed anybody. I never stopped playing the game. I never made a ruckus on the field or in the locker room. And so I would do it again. I think the only thing that I personally would regret was my attitude uh, on a day-to-day -day basis in 2018 up in the big leagues, three months I was there. And then when I got sent down to AAA, um, you know, I felt some type of way with the treatment, um, with the, the lack of opportunity to play when for the past six years and the past two years in the big leagues, I did my job very well. And I showed up every year to do my job very well to, um, to make all these changes that the Oakland A's wanted me to do throughout my career and do it and with the respect and the trust of my teammates. I thought I proved that on a day-in and day-out basis, regardless of what task they threw to me. And to see me go from, you know, my league debut hitting 290 and the next year hitting about 240, 250, um, and then, you know, going into spring in 18, even I was a little overweight, I admit that, had some issues in the off season, a little stress, but I came in and did my job and I did it very well. And to be booted and then to have my play time cut, I was in the big leagues for three months and I played 17 games. I was like, I said for an organization, that's the only organization I've ever been in. Um, I, I do regret my attitude in 18. Now with saying that it was just, and it was what I was going through, but I had nobody to talk to. I said, I didn't have any, I didn't, my agent wasn't checking on me. Nobody was trying to help me uh, embrace this number two role or the situation I was in in life in general. Um, so I was pretty much on my own, you know, I, I was, I was solo. I was in my own thoughts every day, all day. And nobody gave it honestly. And they showed it. Um, it was an unfortunate situation. I let it get the better of my my day-to-day -day emotions and my character, and that's not like me, And but that's about the only thing that I do regret. Um, I, I, I don't regret standing up for what I did. I don't regret doing what I'm doing and continue to do what I stand for uh, because it's a much bigger problem than the game of baseball or bank bank account check in my, in my, uh, in my pocket, so... Um, I want you to uh, to help educate me on something All right. because you mentioned that your dad is black and your mom is white. And so uh, you're light skin and you're growing up in the deep South. We had an interview with a woman in the Bay area uh, the other day. It was, uh, I believe she was in Oakland and uh, similar situation with her and she was a, a store owner 
and she uh, was expressing the frustration that uh, black people felt she wasn't black enough and white people said, well, you're not white. And she was also uh, married to a white guy. So a lot of people didn't like that either. And she just felt completely frustrated by her. Like you mentioned earlier, none of this is, is, is her doing but here she is, and, and for you growing up in the Deep South, what was that experience like for you? It was hell, nothing short of it all. I got more, I think I got more of it than my sister because I'm a, I'm a boy, I was a man, you know? But um, it was hell, dude. The white kids didn't accept you because you didn't look like them. The black dudes didn't fully accept you because you didn't look like them. You know, I'd have days where when I was growing up, I'd have days where I had to, I had conversations with my mom because I wanted to dress a certain way so I could fit in with my black friends, or I wanted to dress a certain way to fit in with my white friends. And for me, like the sport I played, it was like I would go from, I would go from being with black people all day long, like when I was growing up, like two of my best friends are black, full of black, played baseball with them almost my whole life. Um, those are my guys. So I'd go from hanging out with them during class to go on a baseball practice where there's not another black person on the field. Coaches, all my coaches are white. My teammates are white. Like, so I actually, when you ask, I actually had a problem with my high school coach at the time, my junior year of high school. It's actually kind of humorous. Um, my high school coach had called my father one day in the fall and told my dad that he thinks that I was a confused kid because he would see me, because he was also a teacher. So he would see me during the day, and I'd be happy, smiling, cutting up with my friends in, in, the, in school. And when I got to the baseball field, I was quiet. I didn't fraternize with nobody. I did my work, and I took my ass home. He thought I was a confused kid. So instead of talking to me and asking me why I was the way I was, he called my father, who's also an African-American, and he called him to tell him that I was a confused kid and I really didn't know who I was. Needless to say, my dad didn't take too kindly to that comment. So my dad had his choice words with him. I had my choice words with him. And um, it was the issue from then on out, personally. Um, I had numerous issues with racial, uh, racial issues on my team in high school. Um, I had a couple of issues when I was in college with just racial uh, kids at college, not necessarily my teammates. Um, you know, it was just it's unfortunate being in the South. I grew up in the South. I was raised in the South, and and uh, I went to college in the South, man. I mean, I went to I, – I was the only black kid on my baseball team from when I was seven years old till I was 14. I got to high school. I had one other kid who's my best friend to this day who was another black kid on my high school team. I went to college, and I was the only black kid on my team until my junior year. And then we had a black freshman who was also from Alabama. Um and then when I get the pro ball, all your dark skin uh, players, for the most part, are Latin dudes. You know, like I thought I was like, oh, I walked into rookie ball first day of rookie ball. Uh, B.J. Boyd, he's my my year high school kid. He's from Oakland, California as well. Uh, one of my homies, he was my roommate. So I was we walked in the locker room. I was like, hey, there's some more brothers in here. Like I didn't know this many played. And then they started speaking Spanish. I was like, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I was like, okay, I lied. And so um, to see to see the the lack still the lack of diversity when it comes to African American baseball players is unfortunate, especially coaches. 
it's unfortunate. It's, but it just reminds me of the South, man. Like it's, 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 uh, it's, it's not a fun, not a fun time, honestly, being on the fence. I mean, it's really not because, um, when you grow up being black, whether, whether or not you're mixed, whether or not you're full black, whether or not you're quarter black to America, you're black. Doesn't matter how much black, like I've been labeled as a black kid person my whole life. Very rarely am I labeled as a mixed kid or, or a biracial kid or, or a kid that was born in Germany, like a military kid. I'm labeled as I'm black. That's it. And that's how people see you. So it's a problem everywhere, especially in the South. Let's just bump the brakes real quick because I just am so happy you've come on when talked with us because, you know, I think that if people just got to know you, if people listened to you, if people heard your story, they'd be so much more understanding. So I'm glad now that you are having a chance to speak out and speaking out a lot more, not just here, but all over. And I hope it continues. Could we also flip it too to Mexico where you are right now? I know that, that you really love it there in Monclova and the people there have been so accepting and the baseball has been great for you and, and your numbers are great too. But I mean, how much better is your life now that you've been able to kind of turn the page a little bit here? My personal life is tenfold of what it was in the last three years. Um, these people down here, I'm, I'm forever, ever going to be grateful for the, the people of the city and the ownership on this team and my teammates as well for opening me with, uh, welcoming me with open arms. Um, I was at a very low point in my life. These guys called me and, and basically resurrected me in my game of baseball. Um, after my 2017 to 18 year, I lost a lot of the love for the game that I played due to my situation at hand. Um, and uh, that was an issue for me because I've played this game my whole entire life. I came down here the day I got to Monclova these people were asking for pictures at restaurants and they knew exactly who I was. They knew my Jersey number. They knew my stats. They knew everything because they were so excited because I was coming here for their team and to, to be able to put the Jersey on here and understand that everybody on our team that's wearing the same Jersey is playing for the front of their Jersey, not the back. And we know that no matter win or loss, our fans in the stands are right behind us. There's no better feeling. No, there's no better feeling. I was in tears uh, when we won the championship last year. First time they brought the championship home to Monclova in 45 years. Wow. I was in tears to see the stands chanting our names individually, chanting our names, yelling as loud as they can, the music, the confetti. It was the most exciting time of my baseball career in my entire life. It really is. It, <clears throat> it, um, it outweighs the day I got drafted. It outweighs my major league debut um, because everybody knows you guys are covering baseball in all types of sports. Um, baseball nowadays in the States is a very quiet, quote unquote, boring game to your spectator. Okay. Um, and down here, it's anything but boring. You have music between in, in between pitches. You have dancers. Some teams have multiple sets of dancers. You got parties going on in the stadium, but it's like when the game is going on, when it is in action, everybody in that stadium is locked in. Um, to see the uh, people love their sport and influence us players with that love 
is something that I cannot replace. It's something that I feel like I owe this city for a lifetime. And if my career keeps me down here until I retire, then I will make sure that when I do hang up my cleats, that this city knows that they have a place in my heart for, for as long as I live and, and long after I, I'm, I'm passed away. So, How hard has it been, you know, playing in Mexico as a catcher? That's one of the most communicative positions, almost short of the manager. So uh, I know that you've picked up a lot of Spanish, but what are the hurdles been like with that? Um, I think the biggest hurdle for me is the trust. The language isn't the language isn't as bad as people might think. Um, I think ninety five percent of our team last year spoke English, and we had Dominican guys, American guys, uh, Latin dudes. About ninety five percent of our team at least understood it. Um, so the language barrier for me wasn't really ever a big issue. It was the earning the trust of my Latin teammates. Because we, my, I, I know you, you guys maybe did any research, but we had Chris Carter, Eric Ibar, Francisco Peguero, Al Albuquerque. Um, I mean, we had some ex-big leaguers with significant time in the big leagues on our team, and they all speak English, and they're all great guys. But with the position that I, that I hold, it requires a level of trust for my pitchers, especially my Latin guys. So that was my biggest hurdle was gaining the trust of some of my teammates to trust in the game plan and trust in uh, what I, what my knowledge and my, my uh, credentials has allowed me to do at a very high level, even for a short period of time. And once they bought in, everything was a lot better. Uh, my coaches trusted me, my owners trusted me, my city trusted me. And it, it panned out with a team effort of winning, bringing in their first championship here, man. So all right, so let's get to the baseball. Uh, who's hitting the ball farther, you or Chris Carter? Because <laughs> that guy hits oh the multiple God, moon. Chris Carter. It's Chris Carter. Chris Carter hit almost 60 homers last season, including the playoffs. Um, he hit right in front of me, so that was always super fun. Uh, I loved when he hit a moonshot and I go up and hit like a single to left or something. It was so great. <laughs> um, he hit a ball. I'll tell you this. He hit a ball in uh, Leonis, the Yucatan, uh, the team we played in the finals. We played them in the regular season. He hit a ball at their stadium, which, mind you, they have the biggest stadium in the league and the, it's very humid there. So the supposedly ball is not supposed to travel too far. He hit a ball in a night game that completely disappeared and went out of the stadium, like in deep left center. And we all just – I was on deck and I was just like, I don't even I don't even know what to – I don't even know whether to give him a high five, give him a hug, like ask him to sign my bat, like right then and there. Like, so I've never seen a ball hit so far in my life. And uh, he is clearly – his BP is a joke. Um, it, it really is. My teammates, especially like the new guys, are just like, yo, who is this? I was like – you're going to find out in a minute. And just launching baseballs, left field, right field, center field, doesn't matter. It's, it's amazing and it's magical to watch, man. It's magical to watch. I bet. I bet. So let's spin it forward here. What's the future for Bruce Maxwell, uh, either in Mexico or back in the States? And uh, what are you looking forward to? Uh, you know what? I'm looking forward to tomorrow. Uh, that's the only thing I got. I don't. I don't put uh, too much precedence on, on, you know, a year from now or three years from now, especially when it comes to my career, because technically I don't really control it too much. 
Um, I can only control my work ethic, my mindset, and my, my performance. And that's the only thing I tend to focus on. I mean, if my career keeps me down here for another 10 years, then I'll be happy as hell if my career somehow uh, ventures back to the States in some way or form, then it's cool. Um, clear, I just personally, I, I want somebody, wherever I play, I want those people to want me there because they want to win and they want me to be a leader on their team. I don't need anybody coming after me for a charity. I don't need anybody coming after me to try to make a, a, a social stand or that we gave Bruce Maxwell a chance. No, I didn't do anything wrong. Um, I don't need that. I don't deserve that. I work my ass off and I work too hard to be a token on a team where I know I can contribute, whether it be behind the plate, at the plate, leadership, whatever it is, experience. And so that's all I want. You know, if that's in a big league uniform, awesome. If it's in a Mexican league uniform, cool. It doesn't matter to me. I just want to play baseball and give my team the best chance to win. I know we don't have too much more of your time. I feel like we could talk to you for two hours, but yeah. we did do our homework on you here. So I'm going to let you choose the next topic because I do have some things I want to get to you on. So I'll let you choose either androids, the phones, puppies, or video games. Which road do you want to go down? Mm. Ooh, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, let's go video games. Let's go All video right. games. Yeah, so before we started recording – I play a ton of video games. I know you do too. I used to be able to do the all-nighters. I can't anymore, but tell us a little bit about your love for Call of Duty and are there any other games you play online with people? Because online is the only place to play. I mean, of course, of course, especially in today's age. Um, I honestly think I love the, um, I'm not going to say brotherhood by any means, but the, the, the friendships you can develop. I mean, I've got guys that I play Call of Duty with, 2K, NBA 2K, with um, MLB The Show with, uh, I've got guys on there that some of those guys are friends of my personal friends and we've been playing. I've got guys that live in Florida that I've been playing PlayStation with for almost five years and we've never physically met. I actually had one of them I first met at my wedding in, uh, in a couple years ago. I, I just, that was the first time I met him in four years of knowing him. Um, I think I enjoy the, the being able to like talk crap to each other on the mic and, and develop a, a sense of uh, friendship through all that. Um, and I play Call of Duty mainly. Um, I play a lot of games personally. I was a, I used to be a big Assassin's Creed guy, um, big story mode guy for the most part. Um, but honestly, I we especially in quarantine, man, we've been gaming it up a lot for the last couple months, late nights, early mornings. I mean, it's it's been uh, it's been pretty eventful. It passes the time, that's for sure. Yeah, I used to love Call of Duty back when I could play it. Now I have little kids, but uh, I used to also play Halo, man. And, and the same thing, I played with the same guys for years, never met them, but played every night, spent hours. I mean, we had people in Australia. You knew how late you were up based on what country the people you were playing with were from. So that's great. Exactly, man. exactly. <laughs> now, I heard you hate Androids. What's up with that? Um, I just, I mean, the time now, man, I got an iPad, I got an iPad, I got two iPhones, I got a MacBook. I mean, it's it's just, I my, my pops has a, and a Windows phone, which drives me insane. Um, <laughs> finally got my mom on the iPhone train a couple of years back. Uh, but I've always had one, not to mention when it comes to accessories, like everything just works so much, like it's so, so, it's so much more smooth. 
um, when it comes to, you know, transferring data or, or saving or sending pics or, or like trying to talk to my family. Like my sister has my niece and nephew, uh, one and a half and almost one and a half and then almost uh, five months, I think. And so it's just much easier to stay connected with people through a FaceTime, uh, through messages. And um, Andros is just, I mean, it's, if you're talking to somebody who has also has an Android, then it's not that big of a deal. But most of my people have, have iPhones. So it just makes, makes everything a lot easier. You notice too, like if you are in a group text with somebody and everyone has an iPhone, one person has an Android, then that the video whole thing's green. Play right, man. They stand back the in. Whole, the, the whole thing's green. Yeah. You can't really transfer photos to each other. I mean, it's terrible. It's, it's ridiculous. It's terrible. It's All right. Terrible. So you said before we started, you have a pit bull. Do you have a puppy or what? Did, I heard you had a puppy. So. Uh, yeah, I do actually. Uh, would you like me to go get him? Yeah, I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. Oh, look at so that. I have a purebred pit bull, gray pit. He's four months old, or, or excuse me, he's three months old, and he is a little problem child. <laughs> he really is. Um, he likes to bite a lot, and I guess I don't know if that's a pit bull thing or a baby thing, but I have a couple other dogs at the house, and um, I've never had that issue as, as, as old as he is, three months old, so... Um, he likes to bite. He likes to tear things up, you know, your normal baby syndrome. But he's uh, – it's funny. I actually got him from uh, one of my guys on the team. He's our lead photographer. He has the parents. And they had a litter, and he called me. He was like, hey, I know you have a house. I heard you wanted a dog. Would you like one? I was like, yeah. You know, what kind of dog are we talking about? So this is my first pit bull. And he's gray. He's three months old. He's almost 30 pounds. Um, he's – almost three times the size of his brothers and sisters. Uh, I took him to the vet a couple weeks ago and the guy was like, what do you feed him? I was like, Purina dog food. Like, I was like, what am I supposed to feed him? Like HGH and like steaks. <laughs> like, I was like, I was like, I'll feed him steaks when he gets, you know, a hundred pounds. Like, you know I'm saying? I'll throw him a full steak or whatever, but it's like, he's, he's three months old. dude. <laughs> like, what am I supposed to feed him? I have dog, regular dog food over here. Occasionally give him some, some chicken or some steak or some shrimp or whatever, if I make it or whatever, but like, it's not like I just feed them all day long. Like I only feed them like three times a day. So, but, but he's, um, he's my, uh, let's see, third bread, third purebred I've had. I had a, we had a purebred Rhodesian Ridgeback growing up. Um, I had an Alaskan Malamute purebred, uh, what, 2015 when I was in AA Midland with the Oakland. And, um, and now he's my purebred pit. So, well, let's hope he stops biting because, uh, if he gets, uh, a lot bigger, that's going to be a problem for the other dogs. That's for sure. Um, man, it's already a problem. I got scratches, man. I got scratches everywhere. Like <laughs> oh, I, got, no. uh, I have, I have two small holes in my wrist where he bit me yesterday. Um, I was actually bleeding through my tattoo. It was actually nuts. Uh, and I was like, dude, my girlfriend's gonna be pissed when she comes over here because she's like five, <laughs> she's like five one, one hundred and ten pounds, man. I was like, he's gonna bite through her arm. Well, um, we got to wrap it up. Is that an Alabama T-shirt that you're wearing? Hundred percent. So are you? 100%. Are you still? You still Crimson Tide, man, or what? Born, I mean, born and raised, man. My parents are from Indiana, and my dad's a big Notre Dame fan. But uh, as I got older, I understood that you know where I'm from. 
me personally is from Alabama, so I've been rolling tight for a long time. I have sweatshirts, T-shirts. Uh, I even got a pair of cowboy boots that have uh, the Alabama Crimson A engraved in the bottom of them. They're, like, custom-made. Um, and I wear them only on Saturdays, football days. And so um, I got jerseys. I got – you name it, I got it, man. I'm a big die hard. Well, it's interesting that even though you went through a lot of frustration when you were growing up, you still do have a connection to Alabama. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the way people treated me and, and viewed me didn't change the fact where I'm from. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's just a sense of pride. You know, I, I do have a pride in sports. I do have a pride in my, my college football team. Um, that has nothing to do with the, the way I've been treated. I mean, Nick Saban's a genius, and I think he's a hell of a great – he's a hell of a coach and, and a hell of a mentor, especially for a lot of young adults. And, uh, you know, it's – it's uh, I still have that, that sense of um, entitlement, for lack of a better word, with my football team because that is where I spent 99% of my life, and that's who I continue to support. That's how a lot of people tell me apart from people down here is because I wear Alabama stuff. I'm like, oh, well, we're in Mexico. That's Bruce. It's got to be Bruce. Well, you should have been with us at the Super Bowl because uh, I'm from Hawaii, and so uh, uh, Tua Tango-Vailoa was there, and uh, now he's going to be playing for the Dolphins. And so I'm, I'm friends with the, with the, the Tango-Vailoa family. So I've I watched a lot of Alabama football the last couple of years. So I'm with you. Well, I mean, next time I'm in the States, if you end up, if you end up going anywhere, give me a call, man. I'll, I'll make a trip. I, have, I love Bama football games. I love the atmosphere in college football in the South. Um, probably one of the best games I've ever been to was LSU-Bama when I was in college in LSU. Uh, in Louisiana, it was the loudest place I've ever been in my entire life. I bet. Um, it really was. So um, I, I love my football. I love my sports. And uh, so I take much pride in wearing this shirt and, and being, being from here. So. Well, we appreciate your time. I don't know if there's like a thousand people emailing here if you're hearing those, all those bleeps. So I apologize for that. But uh, uh, at some point – See, if this, this was an Apple computer, I probably wouldn't have that problem. But uh, <laughs> probably you'd be you'd be able to silence it, and and you could I'd still hear you for another hour. But but anyway, really appreciate your opening up, and I know uh, you know there's a lot of people calling you to try to go over the same thing, and I I don't know whether it's cathartic or kind of a pain at this point to relive a lot of this stuff, but we do really appreciate your openness, and uh, we're grateful for your time. Oh no problem, man. I appreciate the willingness and the openness of you two to uh, even uh, be receptive of what I have to say um, at this time in the country. Things like this are needed. This is part of the, this is the reason why I did what I did, uh, to be a voice no matter how big or small, uh, because as irrelevant as most may say I am, I have a lot more voice and platform than a lot of people in America right now. And so they need this, we need this as a, as a, as a country, as a people. And to instill change, we have to have people who aren't afraid to, to open their mouths, good or bad. So, so I appreciate the willingness to contact me and, and to listen and to engage in this conversation. And I, I look forward to many more down the road. Yeah, man, yeah. I can say for sure, I really, really hope that you do a lot more of these interviews because, you know, I can say that I was around behind the scenes with the A's. I've seen you. I've seen how you interact with people. You're one of the most genuine nice just great dudes and so on a human level man I, I just i wish the best for you i think you're just an absolutely great human being and i hope that you can keep spreading your word and telling your story because i think that all the best for you is what you deserve well i i appreciate that case you're one of very few that 
that know, that know me in my baseball career that truly know me you know I've been, and I know you know that I've always told people that I'd rather you remember me as a good human being than a, than a great baseball player and I, and I firmly stick to that it's a goal of mine it's always been a goal of mine and so I try to uh, be humanly the, the best person I can be on a day-to-day -day basis regardless if we're at the field or if I'm at my home so I appreciate that it means a lot and like I said, I hope uh, things square up with you guys out in there. Be safe. And uh, if you guys ever need anything from me, um, both, you know, you have my, my, my cell phone number. And just give me a shout, man. Give me a shout. All right. Thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Hope we can meet in person. No doubt. You guys have a good day. With authority.